0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu al-Samad. We're getting one in right before Christmas. So, happy holidays. This, you can you can
2: put this in your in your stocking on, uh, what, Tuesday morning?
1: Yes, this is our gift to you. And if you don't celebrate <laughs> Christmas, just, like, let's do it anyway. And um, It's the Druid Festival of Trees. It's sort start of a, an appropriated holiday. It's the solstice, however you want to celebrate. Anyway, let's talk about cars. To, uh, don't forget
2: Krampus. Not Krampus.
1: Yeah. Kramp- Kramp- Krampus is a good one. That's better than Elf <laughs> on the Shelf. Uh, <laughs> so you behave or Krampus will come. There's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of child eating in old fairy tales. It's very strange. I know. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a
2: wonder why my parents ever let their kids look at that stuff. Yeah. I or, or yeah. May, maybe maybe not so much of a surprise. You know, trying to scare some you know, put the, put the fear of something into them.
1: Yeah, I remember being a small child, like under 5 years old and and my mother, I think has a masters in uh in medieval English or something. Anyway, <laughs> or like a, she has a bachelor's and there's—I don't even know. Um, but I remember asking her to tell me at bedtime the story of Beowulf. Oh. <laughs> it's like a bedtime story. <laughs> so kids just—no like wonder that you stuff. turned out
2: the way you did. Yeah,
1: it's, it's true. It's true. Uh, anyway, let's talk about cars. Um, All right. So you are going out with sort of a, a bang. You've, you've had an ATS Coupe.
2: Yeah. Um, ATS-V so, Coupe, I'm sorry. A- ATS-V Coupe, yes. I, you know, the last time I drove an ATS was, uh, I guess, about three years ago now. And that was a sedan with the uh, the two-liter turbo. And uh, the ATS sedan is no longer in production. They stopped making those earlier this year. Um, I think. I'm pretty sure they did. Uh, but they still make the ATS Coupe. And in particular, the ATS V Coupe, and it's you know it's around for a little bit longer. It'll I think this one's probably going to go away sometime in 2019 um, to be replaced by the new CT5, uh, which should be launching uh, in the spring, probably at the New York Auto Show. Um, but for now, we still have this really great car from Cadillac, and you know, for the three or four of you that out there that still buy cars as opposed to utility vehicles, um, you know this. This is, a, this is a great option. I've, I've always liked the ATS because personally, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of somewhat smaller cars, not necessarily tiny cars, but I like I like tiny cars, too. But, you know, kind of you know, small to midsize uh, cars. And, you know, the ATS is roughly the size of a three series or an Audi A4 uh, or BMW C class. Rear-wheel drive, um, significant amount of aluminum in the structure, and the V uh, is powered by a twin-turbo 3-liter V6 with about 450 horsepower, and this is... I believe currently the only Cadillac that you can still get with a manual transmission. Um, the one that came,
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I was getting ahead of what you were just going to say it. So
2: the, yeah, the, the one that came to me had a, had a six speed manual gearbox in it. You know, I was, I I went out to look at the car and I was, or actually I picked it up from the airport and I was amazed when I got in and saw, wow, there's a clutch pedal in here.
1: Don't you, when you, when that happens, like, and it happens, uh, infrequently, even for journalists. Um, when you get a car like that with a manual you're like oh hallelujah it's just like <laughs> yeah. oh it's gonna be a good week like e- even if it's a car that you're not all that excited about just that it has a manual and an and atsv is kind of hard not to be excited about and in, in, you know from a performance driving standpoint i, I don't know It just it, my heart sings every time i get a, a manual transmission car
2: Yeah. And, you know, the, the ATS is, is still really a good, a really good car. Um, I've, I've always liked it a lot. You know, it's got really nice driving dynamics, um, you know, nice balance. It's not, it's not too heavy. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's about 36, 3,700 pounds. Uh, it's you know, in this case, you know, it's rear wheel drive, um, which you know lets you have some fun with it. You know, you got enough power and torque at the at the rear axles to use that to to balance things out. Uh, you know, since it was. Uh, late no, late november early december when i had this thing uh, a couple of weeks ago it uh, they had all the the fleet company had already put snow t- winter tires on it um you know which gives you a little bit less grip but you know it, it was given the the temperatures at the time you know was was the right solution because uh, i think if it still had the summer tires on it it probably would have had even less grip even on dry roads just because the temperatures were below 40 degrees so you know this, this is a fantastic car to drive, um, nice interior. It still has, a, an older version of the, the Cadillac Q system on there, um, which is not a terrible system. You know, it's, uh, it can be a little, a little bit sluggish sometimes, but it does have support for Android auto and CarPlay. Uh, so you can, you can plug in your phone and, and use that interface as, as an alternative to the, the stock Q interface, um. It, it, you know, in the one of the the nice things it's got is um, uh, in the center stack, the control panel for the volume and climate controls. It's a it's a touch. Uh, uh, a capacitive touch uh, surface, you know, surface, but there's some ridges on there. You know, so if you want to change the volume, you slide your finger along, along the volume uh, one, or you know, adjust the, the the tap to adjust the temperatures. It's not bad. You know, I prefer rotary dials, but it's not a bad solution because it does have, um, the, it does give you some haptic feedback, and there's, um, it's got the ridges on there, so you can do it, you know, pretty much without without really looking at it, um, but. But if you tap the bottom edge of that panel, this this panel is just below the touchscreen, the whole thing motors up and out of the way. And there's a hidden compartment behind it, which happens to have um, a a wireless charging unit in there. So if you're not using um, the uh, Android Auto or CarPlay uh, and you have a phone that supports wireless charging, you can just stick it in there, tap the panel again at goes down your phone's out of the way you're not going to be tempted to to grab it while you're driving which is good and it also gets charged just by putting it on there so you don't have to mess around with plugging it in uh, so you you know it does have that nice that nice feature to it unfortunately if you if you want to use uh car android auto in there you do have to have it plugged in so you're not going to be able to take advantage of the wireless charging anyway but you know that's just the way it goes sometimes
1: yeah there's not uh there's not yet a wireless um CarPlayer Android auto is there 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 is uh
2: there there is a a standard for both uh for wireless CarPlay and wireless Android auto but only a few cars have that implemented yet so I think you know over the next year or so a lot of cars will be adding that support for the the wireless version of that uh because what it does is it it, the the bandwidth required for the the streaming is more than what Bluetooth can support and so they actually do it over Wi-Fi uh-huh. um rather than than and that's that's why you know in the past they the the original implementation had it through a plug so you had to plug it in to use the smartphone projection um now they're they're adding Wi-fi support in there and as most new cars now have Wi-fi in there manufacturers are adding that and i I don't have a a comprehensive list handy of which cars have it. Uh, But there are some cars on the road that do support wireless CarPlay and Android Auto. Now, I think Volvo uh, might have been one of the first to add um, wireless CarPlay support.
1: I would assume that as Wi-Fi becomes much more common and it has started to really become very common, uh, especially since a lot of the cars now are uh, basically becoming hotspots. You know, um, that kind of thing is going to be a lot more. uh, It's going to proliferate a lot more.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, within the next couple of years, you know, you're going to see nearly 100% of new cars in North America that have both um, cellular data connections, LTE connections, and Wi Fi built into the vehicle. Um, And, you know, most manufacturers now are, you know, on their new cars are offering anywhere from three to five years of free basic telematics services. So, you know, if you buy a new GM vehicle, you get five years of basic on-star services like, you know, remote lock and unlock remote start, find the car, um, you know, nine one one assist. So if you're, if you're in a crash and the airbags go off, it'll automatically call nine one one and send out first responders, things like that. Um, And then they also have premium services on top of that that you can pay for. Uh, Ford does the same thing. Hyundai is offering, I think, three years uh, for Blue Link. Uh, Some of the premium brands offer as much as 10 years of free basic services that's that's built into the price of the car. So, you know, everybody's going to be doing this because they want to be able to have the connection to the vehicle. um, because. for for car makers, uh, there's an advantage to them because they can collect some telemetry data um, that gets fed back into their product development process about the way people use the vehicles, especially with um, plug-in vehicles. Uh, for plug-in vehicles in particular, you know they they've pretty much all since they launched, uh, you know in 2010 2011 had telematic standard telematics connections uh, so that you can do remote management of battery charging and things like that. And as you get more and more plugins on the road, you know, they'll they'll use that and manufacturers use the data about how often Customers plug in the vehicles to, uh, you know, and to figure out, you know, to make decisions about, you know, what kind of charging do they need to put in the vehicle? Um, You know, what size of battery should they should they put in there? You know, so there's a lot of different uh, things that, that get fed back into product development. And then, of course, they're providing, you know, starting to provide all kinds of other services, like being able to feed your driving behavior directly to your insurance company, you know, in exchange for for discounts.
1: Yeah, that's not terrifying in any way.
2: No, not at all. <laughs> no. What could possibly go wrong with that?
1: Uh, uh, okay, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm now, I'm scared. and I'm, I'm in the paranoia space. But uh, so Q seems better. I was going to say like um, the, the little nubs on the screen. I haven't been in a Cadillac in quite a while, uh, but the last time I used Q, I don't think there were any, any sort of tactile even targets like that. So that seems well, like they keep, they're, they're not,
2: it. they're not on the screen itself. So oh. the, 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 the screen is standard, but uh, if you look just below the screen uh, at the center stack panel below it, there's there's ridges along there you know it's it's marked you know with the things like volume controls, temperature controls and so on the cli- you know the climate controls. And so there's these sort of wide angle v-shaped ridges you know that kind of fit with the, the V theme, you know Cadillac the design theme uh, and those ridges, you know, the surface just above those is a capacitive touch surface, you know, so you to change the vault to adjust the volume, you just slide your finger along the top of that panel. And, you know, then you slide to the to the right and it turns up the volume slide to the left, it turns down the volume. You know, and, it, and it's a reasonably precise system. And it's because of that having that ridge there, it's a little chrome strip. You know, if you look at it and having that that chrome strip there gives you something that you can do it without actually looking at it so it's more like a volume control i still prefer a rotary vo- a rotary volume controller but this is the next best alternative you know among the the systems i've tried um And and the you know, since the since the Q first launched back in 2012 or so, I think, uh, you know, they did improve the performance. It it has gotten better. Uh, It's more responsive. You know, it's you know, it's 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 a you know, it's. In terms of its interface, it's fairly standard, you know, among most automotive interfaces. You know, you've got a grid of eight icons, you know, and you sweep through a couple of pages of that um, left to right. And, you know, to control the various elements, you know, to go between nav and the media controls and things like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's not it's not terrible. I've it, it's I, I personally think it's more intuitive to use than, than Volvo census. Yep. But that's me.
1: So, and the, the car, uh, you know, especially since it's an ATS-V with the manual transmission, makes up for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can just drive it.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're not even really thinking about that other nonsense anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. I mean, that's that's probably, let's see, ATS-V with the, they don't offer a uh, Camaro outfit like that. Right with that V6, they. That's uh, no,
2: you you cannot get that that tur- twin turbo V6 is a Cadillac exclusive. So they've had it; it's been the top engine in the CT6. Um, I think I'm not sure if it's been available in the CTS or not. It was
1: in the XTS. Um, um, that right, the V Sport. No. Uh, no. Oh, but, that's not the V Sport engine. Uh, oh wait,
2: yeah, uh, yes, yes, I think it was in there. Er- Maybe
1: may- uh, some version of of some turbo V6 was in the the V yeah. sport i don't know if it's that one yes something. yes uh
2: <laughs> yeah they, they 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 have had the 3.6 liter twin turbo in the in the xts as well uh so and in fact it's still available in there
1: livery drivers rejoice yes
2: but i, I will i will take the V over the xts any any eight days of the week
1: yes Absolutely. All right. So you're keeping it GM uh, specific this week, though. You also had the Acadia Denali and you said you, you really liked it, which I, I don't know if that's a Did surprise. I say that? Well, I, I think so. I don't know. Okay. Is that wrong? Uh, I mean, it was okay. Um, you know it, it was
2: nothing, you know, it was nothing, you know, it's nothing earth shattering, you know, when this this time around, when uh, GM did the second generation of its um, Lambda uh, big crossovers, you know, they, they launched the original ones about 10 years ago, uh, initially with the uh, the Acadia and the Buick Enclave. And then they had uh, the Saturn Outlook, uh, which, you know, went, went lived for a couple of years before Saturn uh, went away. And then uh, also the Chevrolet Traverse. And all, th- all four of those variants, uh, you know, were very similar. They all had, you know, distinct exterior styling, uh, some distinct uh, interior design differences, uh, but they were all exactly the same size. They had the same wheelbase. They were the same height, same width, you know, and, you know, in terms of their And they all had the same 3.6 liter V6 uh, as the only powertrain option, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. You know, it's a it's a good combination. But, you know, all all four of them, you know, were really the same vehicle, you know, just you take your pick of which one you think looks, you know, better or worse, or, or better fits your budget. You know, they were slightly different price points. You know, the Buick was a little more luxurious. the uh, The GMC was kind of in the middle, and and the the Traverse is, you know, kind of the more mainstream model. This time around, you know, they just, they kind of split the three apart: the Enclave, the Traverse, and the Acadia, and they actually made the Acadia a little bit shorter. Uh, it's about a foot shorter than the other two, uh, which means that it has less third row room than before, less cargo space behind the third row. Um, you know, because what what they what they found from their their studies of people that were buying these vehicles first of all they they wanted to make the three models a little more distinct from each other than they had in the past and when they studied you know how the customers of the three different brands were using the vehicles they found that most often you know gmc customers you know they were interested in it, you know, it's kind of a lifestyle vehicle. They were off, you know, it was often just a couple or a small family and they were generally only using two rows anyway. They typically weren't using the third row in most cases. And so they decided to kind of make the third row more, more of an option, you know, kind of there, you know, for emergencies, but not really as a primary seating location, like it is in the two longer models. And so they, they made this one shorter. It's, you know, like 700 pounds lighter than the, uh, than the previous, um, Acadia. And, you know, so in that respect, you know, it's, I think it's, it's generally an improvement. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a little more, um, you know, it's, it definitely feels lighter than before. It doesn't feel quite as ponderous, but it, I wouldn't, you know, and this was the, uh, the Denali version, which is the, the high end, you know, more luxurious, more premium version and driving it, you know, I found that Mm -hmm. it felt, um it felt kind of soft. It, you know, and it felt more old school American to me. It didn't the, the driving dynamics didn't feel as buttoned down as as what I expect of most modern vehicles. Uh felt a little more wallowy in its handling. Um, you know, maybe a little bit under damped. Um and you know, I just found that somewhat less pleasant to drive. You know, terms
1: is it still as stupendously heavy as the earlier lambdas or has no,
2: it- no, that's, that's what I was saying. It's, you know, it's, it was, I think it's about, uh, almost 700 pounds lighter than the first generation Acadia. Okay. Um, because it's, it's, you know, like you said, it's about a foot shorter and, you know, in general, the overall, the whole Lambda architecture was made lighter for the second generation. So the, the enclave and the, um, uh, the Traverse are also lighter, but not by as much. I think they're about 300 pounds lighter. You know, but they're closer in size to they're they're about the same size as the as the first generation models. This one, because it also got shorter, it got co- significantly lighter, um, and you know, so that that definitely helps. Um, but you know, I still think that the 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 suspension tuning just seemed a little off to me.
1: Just uh, like too cushy or yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. A little bit too cushy, a little too soft, um, you know, and, you know, like driving down, you know, going around corners um, or just, you know, just making a quick lane change. You know, it, it felt, it felt underdamped. damped. Uh, you know, it felt like the body was moving around more than I expect of most modern vehicles.
1: So it, it basically, it floats more than, um, yeah, expected and, to? Uh, you
2: know, it, it's not, I, I think that the, <clears throat> I think the spring rates were, you know, were generally okay. So I don't think it, I didn't think it generally felt too soft in terms of its spring, spring rates. It's just, I, I just think it, it mo- you know, it didn't settle down quite as quickly as I expected it to. And, you know, the, the body kind of moved around a little more than I, than I wanted it to. So maybe, maybe bushings are a little too soft and dampers are a little too, too soft.
1: Right, so it needs some some Bilstein shocks and some some polyurethane bushings in certain places, and then it'll be perfect. Oh no, actually, the
2: the other the other thing too is you know for a Denali, you know, I mean this thing was fifty seven (laughs) thousand dollars. It didn't really feel as luxurious as I expect a a nearly sixty thousand dollar vehicle to feel.
1: I'm just amazed that that I know GMC gets a a higher transaction price, but for Essentially, what's a, a, a on the larger size front wheel drive or all, all wheel drive um, crossover like? That just seems like you're you're really that's a lot of money for a vehicle like that, even if it's nice, you know. Like you're starting to cross yeah. into well, territory of like luxury brands. Yeah, I mean, uh,
2: unfortunately, that's not at all uncommon. You know, when you're starting to look at you know these larger crossovers, you know, more premium crossovers, you know, sixty, nearly sixty grand is. This is pretty much par for the course now.
1: Yes. That's just so much money. I know. I, it's not, I'm sure it's I mean, like,
2: you know, it, I mean, you can, you can buy $60,000 grand Cherokees now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the high end grand Cherokees well. I mean, there's also the track Hawk, which is 90, but right. that's a whole different ball of wax.
1: Uh, yeah. And like, but so I guess this is, this is really what what I'm getting at. Like even the $60,000 grand Cherokee, like, there's a certain level of premiumness over say the $40,000 grand, forty Grand Cherokee. You know, the leather is nicer in the $60,000 that's, that's going to be like a summit or uh, an overland with all the options, which is essentially a summit, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's going to have like everything on it. And did, did the Denali, uh, you said it doesn't feel quite as nice as, as you think it should for that money.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it had, had everything on there. Um, but, no, it, it, for, there's just something about it. You know, I mean, there were still a bunch of plastic surfaces that, you know, didn't feel as premium as I would expect in a $60,000 vehicle. You know, the leather was nice. You know, you had leather, leather surfaces on top of the dash, but you know, the surrounds on the, 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 the audio system and everything, the touchscreen, um, you know, just didn't feel quite as good. Yeah, I, didn't look as good.
1: You know, this uh, we'll come back to this because this is a problem for uh, brands that are sort of in this near luxury or I, I don't even know. It's, GMC's not really near luxury. That's a, that's kind of a luxury brand in in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, it certainly is. You know, because <clears throat> excuse me, GMC
2: sells what are effectively the same vehicles as Chevrolet trucks and utilities. But they have distinct styling, you know, and it is, you know, it's the professional grade brand is their their tagline, you know. And and so it, you know, I mean, the reason why GMC exists today in in the post bankruptcy GM is because when they sat down to to figure out what they were going to do during the the bankruptcy reorganization, which brands they were going to cut and which ones they were going to preserve. You know, the original plan was to cut everything but Chevrolet and Cadillac. And then they sat down, you know, the the, the guys from the government s- sat down and looked at the numbers for GMC, and they realized that GMC vehicles were, you know, transacting at you know nearly ten thousand dollars more than an equivalent Chevrolet truck or utility, and they said, okay, well maybe we should keep this around uh, because it's you know th- it's it's worth it, you know, that that ten thousand dollar. Price premium, you know, that you're getting for a lot less than ten thousand dollars in additional cost, um, you know, makes it worthwhile to keep this brand around, and you know, GMC still does well at that, you know, and and they have, you know, they have continued to diverge their design uh, over the past decade from Chevrolet. So, you know, you look at a. Uh, uh, Silverado or, you know, Silverado versus Sierra or Tahoe versus Yukon or Traverse versus an Acadia. And they all look very distinct from the uh, from the Chevrolet equivalents, even though underneath the skin, they're basically the same, you know, m- much as you know, we've talked about with Lincoln and Ford. Uh, and that, you know, that's a good thing. But I think that in a lot of ways, the GMC vehicles just don't even though they're priced higher and they're, they're getting those higher transaction prices from customers, something about them just doesn't feel quite as premium as, you know, some of the other equivalent cases of, you know, at other companies.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's, I guess what I'm getting at is, if you're going to spend almost $60,000 on the GMC, you're going to look at what else is around for that price level. And there's, I mean, that's BMW territory. Um, I, 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 certainly you're going to spend a lot more on a, very well equipped X5 or something, but it's not not beyond the pale. But if you you know if you
2: take a you know an entry X5, right. You know that's going to be in that fifty to sixty thousand dollar price range, and you compare it to uh, an Acadia, uh, Denali at you know a similar price point. Uh, I think the BMW is going to feel more premium.
1: Oh, yeah. I was going to say it's just going to even even with cloth seats it just feel more substantial. And that's not to say that the Acadia is a bad car. It's just like that's that's getting rarefied air. But, uh, I mean, good, good for them if they can sell it that boldly and they can actually close sales. Yeah, (laughs) I'm i am I'm not sure that they're going to actually uh, shift them all for that price. We're in the season of super good deals and um, temporary easy financing uh, <laughs> to move the iron um, for next year. So uh, you get the deal now. <laughs> uh, so I.
2: So what have you been driving? I was going to
1: say, I was going to pivot. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, Ram came up and actually... I think we had like the worldwide global introduction of the 2019 Ram 1500 North Edition here in New England a few weeks ago. Yeah,
2: I think we talked about that yeah. uh, a couple couple episodes ago.
1: So uh, the car that was there or that we all stared at, well, or the truck. I'm sorry, that was there while we all. Uh, ate dinner and uh, stared at it uh, wound up um, in my driveway this week. And it's a lovely Ram 1500 North edition uh, in, in a nice shade of red. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before where when you compare the current slate of pickups from, from the big three, uh, the Ram has the nicest interior. And I just, for me, I find that I like the Ram the best and and uh, the North Edition adds to that. You know, it adds a lift, uh, so it's a one inch lift. It's based on the Big Horn, so it's a couple of trim levels up from the most basic model. Uh, it's got um, a bunch of sort of different touches added for all weather running. So it actually has, and I was really interested. It has. Um, all weather tires so that it, we and we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago or, or last week where it they're not all seasons and they're not winter tires but they're this this new category of tire that's sort of starting to emerge called all weather tires, because there are people that live in places where you don't get a ton of snow, but when you get the snow, uh, it causes chaos (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're on a bunch of all seasons that just don't work as well. So these all weather tires, these actually, these are, of I think they're Falcon wild peaks and they look cool because they have raised white letters, um, which always looks good on a truck. Uh, they have the, the little, um, snow mountain symbol on the sidewall, which means that they offer better snow and ice. Uh, traction so that's interesting and and you know they they have a aggressive tread pattern and they seem like they'll they'll do well and unfortunately it's right now it's about 60 degrees out (laughs) so i haven't tried it in uh in winter weather uh but you know i I mean the the ram is it's a big comfortable quiet truck this one has the hemi so it's it's powerful uh it's hard not to just
2: does does that does yours have the e-torque
1: uh no it doesn't Okay. It's just, uh, I, so the I don't know if you can get the North Edition with the e-torque on the V8. You can get it with the e-torque on the V6. Um, I know that.
2: Uh, I'm I, it may pretty be... sure you can get it on on any uh, Hemi. That,
1: that's, that's, that's probably true. Um, yeah, I think they wanted to represent sort of what the, the actual... Package would be, and you could um, certainly you can add to it because trucks are like that. Uh, so it you know has a, a body color sort of monochrome uh, scheme to it, which looks again it, it looks good. Um, that one inch lift just for running uh, through either you know snow or you know just a little bit off cool. Yeah, or just to look cool and be harder for short people like me to get into. My <laughs> my kids are like, how do I get into it? I'm like, I don't know. Um, and it, it also has a, an electric locking uh rear axle um this one's four wheel drive uh it has you know winter floor mats which are nice so you don't get the like snow and slush in your nice carpet um the thing that like it's a it's a pretty good package overall you know it's got heated front seats and a heated steering wheel it's 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 good for the the you know the cold weather it's a good good truck like that um and i think it also has a class 4 hitch standard which is cool um but like you can't get nav with it because it's based on that Bighorn, and you have to step up to like the laramie trim to get nav which seems a kind of a waste when you've got this this large screen um and there were a couple of times
2: is that the 12 inch screen or the 8 inch no
1: it's got the 12 inch screen um i think it's a pretty big Mm. screen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, regardless, it does
2: have Android Auto and CarPlay support, it, so you can always use your phone now.
1: Yes. That, and that's basically what you're limited to is this phone. Nav, and because my phone is stupid and old, I can't project it like that. So I have to around with my phone to use phone apps. So like that's and I I I get it like they made some decisions to keep the price reasonable and it is not really that expensive of a package to get some some nice stuff. The new LED headlights are there for example and they're fantastic. Uh it has a big panoramic moonroof. Um you know, and it's got the hemi under the hood <laughs> so it, it's it's a nice compromise. It's a it's a it's a good truck. Um I think the North edition is like a $6,000 package. Uh on top of the the big horn but uh you know i like the ram it's big comfy quiet this seems like a really smart package um it's it's funny where they they trimmed the money you know like um the monochrome exterior actually makes it cheaper because they don't have to put like you know freight work. You know a chrome bumper is more expensive than a uh, painted bumper, uh, and it doesn't have any stickers other than four x four, which is I think it's the only Ram model that says four x four on the side of the on uh, the side of the bed. But um, you know it, it's it's not quite as distinctive as say like the I think there's a Lone Star edition that has its own badge. You know, I'm yeah. like, well, I'm,
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the Ram trucks website right now, as you speak, you know, just pricing this out and it's the eight inch um, screen,
1: by the way, I was mistaken. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: And, um, when, you know, when you, when you click on North edition and look at details, the very first item on the list of includes four by four decal. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so funny.
2: Yeah. And, 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 and you can order it with the, uh, with the e-torque AMI as well.
1: So what is that? What's the e-torque so, cost? Because what,
2: uh it's 1100 bucks i think
1: that's not a bad deal
2: yeah because uh you know when when you order this you you order the bighorn first you so you select bighorn and then you can uh you can pick any of the three engine options from there um and then uh and when one of those you know you've got the the pentastar with the e-torque the standard hemi or the the hemi with the e-torque um and oh, actually, let's see, it's twenty six hundred, but that's it's actually part of a package with a bunch of other stuff. I think on, on other on other models, you know, where you can on other trim levels where you can order the e torque Hemi as a separate kind of standalone option, it's about eleven hundred bucks. Yeah, and it's you know I think I think it's something it's worth it because having having driven it, you know the the improvement in fuel economy, the refinement, and you know the ability to you know just kind of the general um, control of the thing works really well.
1: Yeah, this is a great truck. I was just struck driving it. Is it's because people are using their trucks more as uh, personal cars. You know, it's a it's great at filling that role. It is. um, It's got the air suspension, so it's it doesn't ride terribly you know it definitely rides with some heft as any pickup truck is going to do but uh the materials and the choices are really nice inside it only has cloth upholstery uh in i think a couple of different colors The the one that i have has uh like a, a tan color and they put accents in the doors which are made out of the same material and the, you know the color schemes and stuff their interior design team did a bang up job here <laughs> um you know it's just it's a good comfy truck and it can be useful you know it's a four-door truck so it's it's got that large space i really want to try a full-size suv made out of this truck and i know we're probably going to get one as a jeep uh and i think that that's fantastic because it's it's a really good platform for it you know the whole time i'm driving i'm like i don't really care about the, the pickup bed in this thing but if they made an suv like this i think it would be a winner. Um, it it'd certainly give another choice besides the the, the Tahoe and, and suburban and uh, the uh, expedition. The expedition, which the expedition is great, but you know not everybody's going to going to want that. And I think honestly, the, uh, the the interior of the Ram, which is where you spend all your time is nicer than what's in the expedition so
2: oh e- it's easily the best of of the current breed of trucks yeah
1: and i think that that makes a big difference you know it's it's an easy driving truck it's easy to put a lot of miles on it even without you know it's it's a mid-level truck so it's it's not it's expensive but it's not super expensive i think it's about forty six, forty seven thousand dollars, um which i know that's a lot of dough but it's not unheard of in the truck world like that's that's a, a pretty decent
2: that's, truck. That's actually pretty reasonable. Yeah. I mean that 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 Trail Boss, uh, Silverado Trail Boss, I drove a few weeks back. That was like fifty six, oh. I think. And you know, and that and that's not even that's not even remotely the most expensive. I mean, you get into something like a Raptor, um, you know, or or even a Ram Limited, you know, and you're easily up into the seventies and and approaching eighty
1: thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeesh. <laughs> uh, the, I think the thing that struck me the most is uh, when they unveiled this, uh, somebody asked, like, hey, what kind of a plow can it do? And they said, well, you know, it's, we don't really recommend putting plows on 1500s. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, plows are a lot of weight hanging off the front of the truck. So it, it beats up a lot of the components, especially the, the suspension. Uh, you know the springs, and these are air springs, so I can see their argument for it. But it blows my mind that a you know fifteen hundred that's this burly is not recommended to. It, you, know, you really shouldn't put a plow on it. It's like, uh, yeah, you should be able to put a plow on this thing. It's so much stronger <laughs> well, than they, trucks have ever been. They,
2: yeah, I mean, they, they want they want to sell you the the HD truck if you want to do work like that with it. Yeah, and I, and you know the the frame of the frame of the heavy duty trucks has been reinforced. To support that kind of stuff, you know, as well as, you know, just ma- because, with a, you know, when you put the, the weight of a plow on the front of a truck, you also have to do some stuff at the back end, you know, yeah. add some ballast at there to, to balance it all out. So you're, you're carrying around, you know, a lot of extra payload besides just that plow on the front.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to make compromises to, to make these kind of vehicles. So the kind of vehicles that people want, but they have to meet cafe um, in some mm-hmm. way so yeah the frame is a little maybe a little lighter than the hd truck so it doesn't have gussets where it needs to be reinforced uh you know the handling with a plow on it is without weight you know if i think that's the other thing too if you're really serious about it and you know what you're doing you'll get the hd truck for it if you're just sort of like a a, you know well and and that's you're gonna make it handle evil
2: right and that's that's the other thing you know the the 1500, you know, is the only full size pickup truck right now that, you know, standard setup, you know, is coil springs front and rear. You know, it's the only one with coil springs on the rear. All the others have leaf springs at the back and the HD trucks, you know, those still have leaf springs at the back. So that's another thing that, you know, for given the payload capabilities and towing capabilities and and kind of the usage pattern of a light duty truck, you know, that it makes sense. You know, it gives it better. Uh, better driving behavior, better ride quality than any of the other trucks. Um, But, you know, I think that that may also be a limiting factor for the plow. And, you know, certainly, you know, if you go for the optional air springs and that's I think that's definitely a case where you you don't want to combine those with a plow. Yeah,
1: you're going to be beating the hell out of the compressor just to keep that level. It's it's not going to be happy with it. Um, but it just again, it's just one of those things. Like this is a lot of vehicle to sort of have that kind of limitation. It's like you get a truck, use it as a truck, but they have their reasons, and I'm sure they're solid reasons. Uh, it's it's a solid truck. It's still my favorite pickup out of anything yeah. you can buy. you you know
2: one of one of the other neat things when you look around the the cabin of the the new ram 1500 they you know there's some interesting design details like you know they've got the rotary controller for the shift uh, that's on the dashboard you know to the lower left of um, the climate controls and the touchscreen and what they've done is they've grouped everything around that they've grouped all the other controls that are relevant in terms of Drive behavior, you know, so like the four wheel drive stuff, uh, you know, four, you know, four wheel drive low, if you've got that, um, you know, all, all those kinds of features are grouped right by where you're also, you know, so your, all your transfer case stuff is grouped right where the transmission controls are. So you're not, you're not scattering that stuff around all over the dashboard. So I think there's a lot of really thoughtful stuff that went into this.
1: Yeah, I think and that's what it feels like. Um, The the whole thing feels pretty pretty well thought out. It's not um, it's not like slapped together, you know. And it's it's not like they said all people will never see that, and so they they cheaped out. I'm sure there's areas where they said yeah, people won't see that, so we can we can make adjustments. But now overall, I I feel like they did a a really just a very careful job of making the truck. pleasant and uh feel high quality and and fussed over and that's you know i think that's the same reason why uh the grand cherokee is is so popular because it's it's the same thing and and so fca is really good at that and in trucks i I think that's the way you get the people to cough up seventy thousand dollars
2: yeah and um you know the uh uh, FCA was also the first manufacturer to start putting USB type C ports in their car, in their vehicles. Uh, they started with the Wrangler and the Ram also has them. So you get both USB A and USB C ports. So if you've got a newer phone that supports that, you get faster charging rates.
1: Huh? <coughs> yeah. It's, it's the ergonomics are fantastic in here too. That's I didn't really touch on that. Cause I know I've, I've talked about it before, but yeah, good, good trucks. If you need a truck and a light duty truck, that's a good light duty truck. <laughs> Yep. All right, let's let's talk about other stuff. Uh, So, shall we? Shall we stay on FCA for a moment? Yeah, let's stay on FCA for a moment. All right. So, uh,
2: Allpar, uh, which is a site that is, uh, strangely enough, uh, devoted to all things uh, related to uh, Fiat Chrysler, or, or. I think more particularly the traditional uh, Chrysler Group brands uh, is reporting that there's a new engine coming from um, from FCA in the near future, uh, which is a new inline six cylinder engine. So it's we're kind of going back uh, back to the future with this thing.
1: Yeah, but the, like it's it's the first thought about. An inline six is like, holy crap, how are they going to package that? That's going to make for a long nose. But their idea is that they want it to fit in the same physical length package or like within three inches of the current 2.4 liter four cylinder they make. So um, that means it's not just a four cylinder with a couple of extra cylinders tacked on.
2: Right. This is this is a this looks like it's a completely new engine. And, you know, this is not the first new inline six to, you know, to be coming to market, uh, you know, now and in the in the near future. Uh, GM uh, has an inline six cylinder diesel coming for their light duty trucks next spring. Uh, and uh, about a year ago, Mercedes Benz launched a new inline six that uh, debuted in the, the European uh, uh, s-class and uh, this year came to the the new uh, cls uh, that's that just launched here in the u.s uh, and that you know those are both three liter inline sixes and they're, they're they've gotten a lot more compact you know so even though it's an inline engine it's 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 smaller than traditional ones and you know for the kind of Use cases. You know, they're not using these in front-wheel drive vehicles. You know, where it's mounted transversely. You know, these are all in longitudinal configurations. You know, in in cars and trucks and utility vehicles. And this one is uh, supposedly codenamed Tornado, and would ultimately replace the the much loved Pentastar V6, um, as a three liter three liter six cylinder with um, twin turbos. Uh, which would make it you know, a lot like the um, the BMW six cylinders.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably also going to eat into some of that Hemi um, market share there with the twin turbo six. It's definitely going to be able to fill the, the same role as the 5.7 liter Hemi.
2: Yeah, I would guess that you know when they launch this, you know, and the reports are that it'll debut uh, either in the upcoming Jeep Wagoneer or perhaps the next generation Grand Cherokee, depending on the the timing. Um, yeah, you know, it would probably replace the the base, the non e torque Hemi. So you know you'll have the Hemi with uh, e torque as you know as the standard configuration for that, and then you know this one would kind of slot in uh, below that, you know, probably with with e-torque or with some other kind of uh, hybrid configuration as well.
1: Yeah. And, and they're doing a lot of tricks to actually get it. Well, they're not doing a lot of tricks, but there's a lot of sort of modern construction techniques for engines to get at that that compact, too. And everybody's figuring out with modern engine management, we can really make turbochargers this this big element of, of how we generate the power and the torque that people want without uh, so much physical size and weight and fuel economy penalties. So, they're actually thinking from what I read of uh, not using steel sleeves in the cylinders, but rather doing some other kind of aluminum hardening process or, you know, like the, the plasma deposition or, or other manufacturers have figured this out. Uh, you know, BMW has done it for a long time um, with their uh, their V8s. Right. With the, the plasma deposited. Um, well, well,
2: yeah, that's uh, BMW actually does something different. They, yeah, they they're using Nicosil. um uh, well in some of them they were using Nicosil. they were also doing they also did engines and as well as Porsche also did this did engines uh, where the aluminum and the bores had a high silicon content. Uh, Which, uh, for for those uh, that remember history, will remember that that's actually a process that was created by GM and debuted on the original Vega Vega. back in 1970. Uh, Unfortunately, if you ever looked at one of those Vegas, you saw that it also had this tiny little radiator. It wasn't wasn't supposed
1: to have a radiator. Like, uh, yeah. That was the thing. They they were convinced it wasn't going to need a radiator with that new wankel they were developing, and it was ah we don't need to cool it. It'll just air cool. Uh, uh-huh.
2: Right. So they uh, <laughs> you know they had they had this tiny little radiator, which meant it didn't get cooled enough, and they had problems with the cylinders warping. By the time Porsche picked it up for the originally for the 928 engine, a few years later, they um, you know they they cooled it properly, and it was never really a problem. And BMW's done that same process. Um, the the plasma coating process is something that was actually created by ford um and uh while while ford developed it uh it was actually nissan that was the first to um deploy it in production on the gtr engine so the the gtr engine has this plasma coating process uh, where they um after they machine the cylinders they go through and they they do this uh plasma deposition that basically puts uh deposits iron particles on the the surface um you know very tiny iron particles and, and hardens that surface uh and so you don't have to use a, a steel liner in there you know and you still have enough durability and then uh they did they launched that about a year before ford launched it on the gt500 in 2010 i think
1: yeah so there's a lot of ways uh, that they can just they can get that bore spacing down which is really i guess what it what it works out to right it's just packing it all in there tightly
2: yeah absolutely
1: and it, it looks uh, like it'll be a fun engine to yeah i mean we've seen transverse inline 6s too so that'll be entertaining if it winds up in a i mean fca doesn't really have any front wheel drive cars <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, they've got the Pacifica. Like it, it'll fit in the Pacifica. Um, yeah. And, and um, maybe, maybe, should, maybe not. I don't know. Fit. I hope it fits in the Pacifica. It'd be a, it'd be a tight squeeze. So if they don't, if they get rid of the, they sunset the Pentastar V6, and this doesn't actually fit in there, then what is their option? Is it, is it a turbocharged four? Do they make the Pacifica all huh. hybrid? Or, or you know,
2: Pro- probably both of the latter two. So a turbo four and and hybrids would be the more likely scenario, and maybe even just going to full electric. Huh.
1: They really—they need a four-cylinder engine too,
2: don't they? Still have the? They—they they have a new four-cylinder. The the two-liter uh, four-cylinder turbo. Uh, they have a, a new global two-liter four-cylinder turbo um, design, which is that's the engine that you find in okay. the uh, the base Julia and Stelvio. It's also the base engine that's in the um, the Wrangler, the new Wrangler, and it's in the. Um, the Cherokee now. Oh, the that's, 2019 Cherokee that's right. has that that's the first transverse version of it. I
1: yeah, uh, I have not had any experience with that engine. I I keep thinking they're their four cylinders that old uh old old 2.4 the
2: the, the Tiger Shark. Yeah. yeah. That yeah, they still have that kicking around. Um that one that one definitely needs to go away. Uh, <laughs> it has gotten better over the years, but it's 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 not Not a very modern engine, but yeah, that, that new global two two liter is gradually going to be replacing the tiger shark and some of the V six applications, um, over the next couple of years.
1: So is it true that inline sixes are actually smoother than a V six or does it really depend? No, it, it, it absolutely is true. Um,
2: because, uh, you know, a V6, a 60 degree V6 does have some some natural secondary imbalances uh, that are not present in an inline six cylinder engine. Back in my college days, like 30 uh, some years to, you ago. You don't need
1: to do that. I, I, I
2: did. <laughs> I one I, of one of my projects that I did as a co-op student was actually looking at engine balancing because uh, I was working in a, in a GM Canada engine plant. And one of the 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 steps at the, you know at the end of the assembly process the, the engines would go through hot test you know so after it was all put together they would hook up uh, a natural gas line to run it on, on natural gas, you know, for a couple of for a couple minutes, just to test everything, check the timing and all that stuff. And it would also check the balance and they would add some weights to the the front damper if necessary to, to make sure it was all properly balanced. And so I, I did this study on engine balancing and learned all about this stuff. And yes, an inline six is actually inherently balanced in all the first and second order um,
1: forces. Huh. Well, all right. There, there we go. There's, there's no no more definitive answer than that. Um, all right, are we we good on this? We want to move on to the the second topic, which yes. we were we were we'll circle back around to that um, premium brand based off of non-premium stuff. Uh, the the Lincoln Continental. They just released a coach door edition, which I. It's cool. I'm really glad that they did it, and I wish they had done it earlier. And I'm I'm sure I'm not alone with that. But it's their coach doors. You know, a lot of people say suicide doors.
2: <laughs> Please don't say suicide doors around any Lincoln Marketing I, people.
1: I bet. So the other day when this hit,
2: they will, de- they will, they will. You will unless you really want to see them yeah, flinch. I was going
1: to say I, like <laughs> Monday when this debuted, uh, it must have just been a day of just like eyelid twitching for them because nobody. Called them coach doors. Everybody, like every headline was like suicide doors on the Continental. It's like, oh, man. (laughs) And they're not the only ones that call them coach doors. Rolls Royce calls them coach doors, too, for the same reason.
2: I mean, that's all that's always been, you know, kind of the the formal name for this style of of doors, rear hinged doors. Uh, You know, they've always been called coach doors. It goes back to the days of coaches pulled by horses. That's that's where the name came from, because that's that's the way the doors typically were on those things. Right,
1: and they do. It is a benefit for ingress and egress. uh, I I think especially because this this tends to be a car that, uh, if you're buying one, you're. you, you've got some experience, shall you're, we say?
2: <laughs> you, and you are you are more likely to be driven around in this right. car than to be the be behind the steering wheel. If you know, if you're inclined, you know, to have this type right. of right, and
1: thing. especially since uh, there's only 80 of these coming to the U.S. Uh, at least in the current plan. But it sounds like this is really a car for China, and they're, they're doing it for some image burnishing here, which works no matter. You know, how many uh, critics there are of this on the Internet? I I think this is a a really smart move. It makes the the Continental stand out further from the the fusion that it's based on. And I think it really is a payoff for their sort of return to a a retro look and an evocative style. Uh, It it gives it a little bit more uh, drama when it pulls up to the curb. Um, And they're going to be, what, one hundred thousand dollars a piece.
2: Uh, well, they, they haven't given an official price, they said, somewhere uh, north of $100,000. <clears> so it won't be cheap. And the reason why they're doing 80 for 2019, tw- 2019 is the 80th anniversary of the original Lincoln Continental uh, that was built for Edsel Ford. And so they're, they're celebrating that with 80 of these for the 2019 model year. Uh, and then there will be more. Uh, for 2020, there'll, there'll be more, although they haven't said how many more. Um, and then they're also evaluating. And, and for this year, for this first year, it'll only be available in the U S um, they haven't made a final decision yet on other markets. Uh, but my guess is we will probably see this offered in China uh, and possibly even as an offering on other models besides the continental. But, you know, in China, um, you know sedans, big sedans, especially long wheelbase sedans, you know, are still considerably more popular, especially among affluent customers, than utility vehicles. And the you know, in part of this change to do the the new doors was also stretching the Continental by six inches for this version. Uh, so what what for, what Lincoln's actually doing? You know the 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 Continental is built in Flat Rock, Michigan, on the same assembly line with the Mustang. And what they're actually doing for these cars is they're building the complete cars. These are all going to be continental black label uh, models, and the customer will be able to select the color combinations and black label themes that they want. Uh, they'll be completed at uh, at, uh, at Flat Rock, and then they will be shipped with a kit of parts to Cabot Coach Builders in Massachusetts. And you know, maybe we can arrange for you to pay a visit to yeah, them, Dan, cool. and, you know, when they're building some of these, um, at where... Cabot will, uh, and Cabot is one as a Ford uh, Q, what's known as a QVM, a Qualified Vehicle Modifier. So Ford has a bunch of companies that they work with in various sectors uh, that they have certified to do various kinds of modifications. You know, so for example, um, you know, for the cargo vans, you know, they have a, a bunch of QVMs that they work with that do upfitting, you know, to add racks and other equipment in the back. Uh, you know, for tow trucks and various other things, they they have a bunch of different QVMs. And and one, one of the areas they do is for livery vehicles. And so Cabot is a company that has worked with Ford and with other OEMs for a long time to do um, various types of livery vehicles and limousines. Uh, so what Cabot will do is they'll take the finished Continental, pull out the the interior, uh, the, particularly the back seats and the, the console and the carpets and everything. They'll slice the car in half and then in, put in uh, a six inch extension put it all back together, install the new doors and Ford is shipping the new doors, the, the longer doors, uh, as a complete assembly. Uh, so Cabot doesn't have to build the doors. Uh, all the other stampings, you know, Ford has designed and validated all that stuff. They're They're doing the crash testing on it and they're having those special parts, um, stamped by a small, uh, custom shop, you know, that does lower volume uh, production rather than having to tool up their, their regular body shop to do that stuff. And so all that stuff will be sh- the whole kit of parts will be shipped to Cabot with the car and they'll do, they'll do the final uh, modifications on that and then ship it to the dealer. That's,
1: I mean, that's really cool uh, that it's just sort of that kind of small shop effort to bring out a special new model. I think it, it it's really smart on Lincoln's part. I, I love that they actually went through the time and energy and expense to engineer those rear opening or the rear hinge doors um, onto an existing platform Uh, that had to be not insignificant in terms of time and effort to make that work and make all the hinges fit and everything in a space that was never supposed to have them. Uh, It's yeah, it's, it's a car I really want to look at and sort of crawl around um, and just see how it's, how it's been put together and what's different. Yeah. I'll,
2: I'll, I'll talk to uh, the folks at Lincoln and see if we can, Get you set up for a visit to uh to Cabot once once they start doing these, and maybe you can do a little video. Yeah, or they're something.
1: not even far from me, they're in Haverhill, which is, I mean, that's also cool. That's an old mill town. Um, so yeah, right up, uh,
2: per- perfect place to be building something with coach doors. The,
1: yeah, that is the seat of the uh industrial revolution here, really. Uh, Haverhill is right next to Lawrence, and I mean, Lawrence was a a definite mill town that was built on the Waltham system, anyway. <laughs> All right. that's that's awesome um you know there's there's been some detractors that say oh they don't open level and uh, how come it took them so long and still kind of a gimmick it's like yeah maybe it's a gimmick
2: but well, apparently the the original plan was that the you know the continental uh was supposed to get a mid-cycle update um you know around the 2020 time frame that would make these coach doors you know the standard setup um but you know, because sales have been lower than anticipated, and you know, car sales in general are on the decline. I guess they you know, they they probably canceled that program and figured out a you know a more cost effective approach that would allow them to offer this as an option. Uh, you know, and you know because especially you know with the six inch extension and everything, you know. That, that that adds some complexity to the to the problem, um, but I wouldn't be surprised. You know, they are they are planning to show this probably at the uh, Shanghai show next April, and if the Chinese market takes to it, I wouldn't be surprised to see them offer this for the Chinese market, and then potentially also offer it as an option maybe on the new Aviator. See,
1: that's where I think that they're they're making a splash with it now, but I think it would really really give the Aviator and the Navigator. Something to, to stand out with. I know well, the, it, the the naviga- the navigator hardly needs an extension. Th- that's though. that's true. Um, it could really, the coach doors could help it uh, at least just to be different. And you know, it probably doesn't really need them. But
2: <laughs> yeah. And in, in, the, in the case of, in the case of the navigator, you know, I think the kind of the benefits of, you know, the ingress, egress benefits of a coach door, because that thing is so much taller. I don't know that that's, that necessarily makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, that's true. Uh it might, but uh you know, the aviator is a lot closer to the ground. It's more more like a tall car than anything else. And you know, so I think it it could work there.
1: Yeah. Well so for everybody who complained that Lincoln isn't the Lincoln it used to be and the Continental isn't the Continental it used to be, like, here's your thing, you can stop complaining now. They did the best they could with what they had, which I think is cool. Um Now go buy it. Yeah, go 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 drop a hundred K on it uh, and, and honestly it's a very nice car and it's it's very well well done um you, you know we all wish lincoln uh could be a little different than it is but there there's signs of life there i think the aviator can't come soon enough um and and you know we'll see what we'll see what the future holds for the continental nobody else seems to be making any cars so yeah you know. mm. um all right
2: well, the, 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 aviator should be good for Lincoln. And I, I saw a couple of explorers prototype explorers on the road this week and, uh, yeah, that one should do well as yeah, well. Yeah, We're
1: all way more excited for SUVs than we ever thought we would be <laughs> <laughs> too excited. Um, all right. So let's wrap it up with, uh, Tesla. It's the Tesla hour. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, you actually wound up on the news uh, not for anything you did but uh, Kron out in uh, the Bay Area called you to talk about a Tesla that catches on that caught on fire uh, more than once uh, because electric cars are hard to put out yeah
2: so you know the, the this particular story you know re- was about a, a model S that uh, you know the driver had a flat tire had it towed to uh, a nearby tire shop and ten minutes later um, it just it spontaneously caught fire. The battery caught fire and uh, fire uh, fire department responded. They spent several hours trying to extinguish the fire, thought they had it out, towed it to a wrecking yard. And uh, a few hours later, it uh, was on fire again. And, you know, the, you know, the, the the TV station called me, you know, to talk about whether, you know, why it seems that Tesla's catch on fire more than other cars. And, you know, I told them that, you know, I don't think that Teslas necessarily are more prone to catching on fire than any other EVs. It's just that, you know, when it happens to other cars, nobody pays attention. You know, when when Tesla is in the headline, you know, it's you know, that's automatic clickbait. You know, everybody pays attention to that and, you know, it gets you page views. So, you know, in this case, you know, this is one of several Teslas, at least a couple of different cases, at least three different cases I can think of off the top of my head this year. Uh, one was a, a teenager in Florida that was speeding at over 100 miles an hour and slammed into a wall in a residential neighborhood. Uh, and the car caught fire and um Uh, Multiple times. And then there was also the case in Mountain View, California, in March, where an Apple engineer driving his Model X, uh, you know, there was, you had two different problems there. You had the autopilot system that failed him and ran into the center median. uh, And then the car caught fire uh, and again reignited itself uh, later on after it had been towed away from the original accident scene. And this is a, this is a problem we've seen happen before. Going back to 2011, uh, with the original first generation Chevy Volt, um, there was an incident that I think was in Connecticut, if I recall, yeah. um, where. You know, An early Volt was involved in a fire in a garage, uh, in a homeowner's garage, and the, the car was not actually the source of the fire. The problem was the, the homeowner had wired up his own charger in the garage, and so there was an electrical fire in the garage uh, that was unrelated to the car uh, specifically, and uh, but the car got burned in the fire. And then uh, after it was towed away from the scene, uh, it caught fire. You know, the battery reignited two days later and then uh, reignited a third time another day after that. Uh, And so this this is one of the fundamental issues with uh, with batteries is that once they. Once they ignite for any reason, and usually, you know, a fire is caused uh, by some sort of short circuit in the battery, you know, there's usually some sort of physical damage that has occurred to the battery, oftentimes, you know, the result of some kind of impact. Um, And, you know, it. It may, it, it happens, you know, when the, the, you know, an anode a cathode inside the battery, the positive and negative electrodes, uh, come in contact with each other and you get that short circuit and things heat up really fast. And then it heats up the electrolyte, which has, which gives off oxygen and, you know, starts to feed the the flames and it gets to be a very hot fire and very hard to extinguish, um, and on some newer batteries, you know, as, as, as engineers have tried to improve the energy capacity of batteries, one of the, one of the things that they've been doing is making the separators between the uh, electrodes thinner, which means that in the event of some sort of impact, it may be more likely that you're going to get that physical contact that causes the short circuit. Um, so that may or may not be contributing to some of the stuff with Tesla. Uh, but in general... You know, once you've had damage from something like a fire or a crash, you know, it's entirely, it's very possible that there may be other damage inside that battery pack that is not visible, but, you know, that may be causing, you know, excess pressure between electrodes and, and could trigger a short circuit that leads to reignition of the fire. And so I think the, the real issue here is not not specifically tesla but with evs in general i think we need to look at you know what are the procedures that first responders are using um to deal with fires and battery fires you know how are they handling that and once the vehicle has been removed from the original scene of the fire you know how do we make sure that it It doesn't reignite again. And so I think that's something that battery manufacturers, automakers, uh, and also consumer electronics companies, you know, if you've been, uh, you know, if you've taken a flight in recent years, you know, during the safety instructions, one of the things that they tell you is, you know, if your phone or your your other personal electronic device slips down uh, between the seat cushions or between the seats, don't try to retrieve it yourself. Ask a flight attendant for help. Um, and one of the one of the reasons they say that is, you know, because one of the things that has happened on more than one occasion now on flights is, you know, somebody drops their, their phone slips out of their pocket or something. Uh, you know, they've got the seat reclined and they get up you know, or, you know, it, um, you know or they, they put the seat back up again. They move the seat somehow and it pinches the phone, which in turn pinches the battery inside and causes the, that short circuit you know, that causes a fire. You have to be really careful with how you handle these devices, these batteries, um, because, you know, any kind of physical damage to it can trigger a thermal runaway, um, which can be really hard to extinguish.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, that's and like you say, that's that's sort of the inherent thing with batteries It's like you get two chemicals that you put them together. Uh, it's, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get that runaway uh, reaction. Um, and it's not like gasoline-fueled cars don't catch on fire either, you know, and we just they, they we'll, do, we know how but to do usually
2: it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, with, with gasoline or, or diesel fuel you know, if you get a, a fuel leak and it catches fire, you know, it burns up you know, some of it's going to evaporate off, you know, and then it's gone there's, there's no more source of energy right. in there but in a battery you know, there you know in other modules of the battery, there can still be significant amounts of energy stored in there, which means that if if something happens to it, it can um, it can cause a reignition. So, you know, the the gasoline you know it it burns once and that's it. You know, then it's all gone. You know, you drain it off and and there's no more. There's no more fuel there to consume in a, in a fire, but that's not necessarily the case with batteries. Right.
1: And it's, I think one of the techniques is to cover it with sand, (laughs) um, because it smothers Um, sand
2: and and lots of water, you know, lots of cold water to, to keep the heat, keep the temperature down.
1: So that's going to be something to figure out. It's like, are we just bringing truck fulls of sand to, to electric car crashes these days just in case? Um, or yeah, foam. Yeah. Dry
2: foam is another one that they use. Um,
1: you know, it'll be something to, to figure out. Every technology has that, that kind of issue, but I'm a little... But re- regardless, regardless of what you
2: drive, if something happens and your car starts to burn, whether it's gasoline, diesel, um, or electric get away yeah, from the no vehicle. Kidding. Don't try to get back into it. You know, don't, don't try to rescue anything from it, you know, except maybe your loved ones. Um, but, you know, get away from it and, you know, stay, stay clear of it because, you know, uh, unless you have the proper equipment, it it can be extremely dangerous. Yeah, have you ever
1: seen a car fire? They go up quick. They oh, yeah. So, so fast. Yeah. You can't even, <laughs> y- yeah. <laughs> just, just step back. <laughs> I saw a Vannegan burn once at Home Depot. I was sad for the guy. Um, well,
2: and and it's especially true if it's uh it's if it's an all aluminum vehicle. I don't know if you remember a few years back, probably about 2014 or so. Um, It was after the the aluminum F-150 launched, but before the Super Duty came out with an aluminum body, there were some spy photos. I think they were in um, Colorado. One of the the test trucks was out there. They were out doing testing in in the mountains. And um, somebody got photos of one that had burned. It caught fire and burned. And (laughs) basically nothing left but the engine block and the frame (laughs) and the wheels. Because the aluminum aluminum will actually burn at a much lower temperature than, say, steel or, or other metals, and you know, and it burns very hot. Uh, and so, it, you know, again, that's another reason why you want to. And you know, um, Tesla's, for example, have a lot of aluminum in the body, so that can exacerbate things if you have a battery fire.
1: Yeah, I just hope that we can move beyond sort of the, the clickbaitiness of like. Oh, my goodness, the Tesla caught on fire. These are going to, you know, the most terrible things ever. It's like, look, the company does have enough challenges on its own. Let's try not to make things more difficult. for yeah, them. They,
2: have, they, have a lot of, they have more than enough self-inflicted problems. <laughs> right? We don't need to pile yeah. on.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I think it's, it's sort of anytime there's a new technology, there's that like fear of the new. And I think that's part of what's going on here is like, are these things truly safe? And the, you know, they're, they're no more or less safe, I think, than any other car that's been sort of certified for road use. Uh, they're different. And so you have to take that into Mm -hmm. account um, when you're a first responder for the most part. I mean, the other issue is if you if it's not on fire, but you've got, you know, 400 volts of of electrical potential there. um, A lot of times, you know, you need to know where to cut the pillars uh, if there's, you know, cable, you know, and and. And this
2: is one of the things, you know, for example, when GM launched the Volt and I I know Nissan did the same thing when they originally launched the Leaf is they went around doing special training for first responders. They they did a tour of the country uh, and did, you know, did training sessions for uh, fire departments, uh, you know, to where where to make cuts, both um, for electrical safety, but also because in in the case of the Volt, it had a lot more um, high strength and ultra high strength steel in the body uh and you know so they they needed to show people where to where to make the cuts if they needed to get into the vehicle in order to do it successfully and safely and you know um most uh, most manufacturers there's a you can look online you can find um directions uh you know or special instructions for most vehicles uh you know for uh first responders you know how to how to deal with certain types of vehicles um, you know, and and every uh, electrified vehicle, whether it's a hybrid, a plug in hybrid or a battery electric uh, also has a, a big fuse that you can pull out of the battery. It's usually in the trunk. There's a big orange handle that you can grab. And it basically just pulls out a fuse that disconnects the battery from the rest of the vehicle. And so that's one of the first things that they're they're trained to do is find that pull that out before they do anything else in order to avoid getting electrocuted now that won't do anything if the battery's on fire but it will you know even if you cut into something you there won't be any juice flowing through
1: it yeah which uh 400 volts of and it's, it's a dc that comes out of that or is it going to be ac yeah
2: yeah dc dc, DC hey, out of a battery hey, don't want to mess with that
1: and then when we get the porsche
2: Taycan next spring um, that's going to be the first one with eight hundred volts. Yeah,
1: that's uh, DC. Is is not like getting zapped on the the plug at home. Like that's that's no, that's nothing to mess with. Uh, so yeah. yeah, all right. Well, I've, I've been zapped
2: with a hundred thousand volts DC. It's, it's have you really? <laughs> Uh, at yeah, what one, one time I was uh, uh, very very right. low. I was, I was touching uh, the ignition was, coil. Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's that's ex- almost exactly really- what it was. I was well, when I, when I was in college. I was one of my work terms. I was working in the dyno lab at the engine plant, and um, one of the, the things that we would do, one of the tests that we would do on engines, you know, as they were um, idling, is you know do misfire tests. You know, so we pull the spark plug wires off one by one, you know, to to check for misfires. And you're supposed to use these insulated clamps to do it. And one time uh, I, I had a brain fart and just grabbed the, the wire and yanked it off. And, you know, when they went back in the in the old days, you know, when when I was a kid, we we're learning about this stuff, you know, spark, um, you know, the old individual coils and, and distributor systems. They had about 10,000 volts going to the spark. plug. Yeah. When they went to the individual coil systems uh, with no distributor um that one of the reasons they did that is because you get a much um hotter spark you know it gives you better better combustion of the fuel but to do that they were running at about a hundred thousand volts <laughs> and if you grab one of those spark plug wires with a hundred thousand volts running through it even though there's not much current that still gives you a pretty yeah. good jolt. yeah that's
1: i mean i've i've i remember touching the uh the spark plug wire on the the lawnmower and it, it's like it still sucks um you know, you still feel it. I, my, my old snowblower had one of those exposed. That's
2: probably just coming off a of magneto yeah, too, right. right? But
1: it's still, it, 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 stings. Um, my old snowblower had an exposed, uh, plug end. And so, I, and I'd have to reach over to adjust the chute <laughs> and you get, you know, it turns out when it's like snowing and raining and it's moist and you get a little too close to that, you'll get a shock up your forearm. <laughs> yep. And it's kind of like, ah, what is that? <laughs> it's, it's unpleasant. Yes. Uh, all right. So we had a couple of so, questions. So be careful, yeah, yeah, don't, kids. Don't don't crash your electric car and uh, don't um, don't don't play with voltage. <laughs>
2: yeah. So we had we had a couple of uh, questions comments on Twitter uh, that came in in the last couple hours. Uh, we can address those pretty quickly. Um, first one was from uh, Shell. Uh, asked, has Tesla applied for the official German environmental bonus program for the Model Three, and if not, does anyone know why not? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think they have yet because as far as I know, the Model 3 is yet to be homologated in Europe, uh which means it hasn't been certified for sale yet. Um but they're they're in the process of doing that. I know there's been testing going on and recently Tesla started going around and retrofitting all of the supercharger stations across Europe because um they uh, they have a, a new regulation in Europe you know they're required to use uh, standard charging connectors um, and Tesla of course decided some time ago to go their own way with um, you know their own proprietary charging connector for the for all their vehicles uh, so they're going back and retrofitting supercharger stations with um, with the CCS combo type 2 connector which everyone uses everyone else uses in Europe. Uh, and I, I saw last week uh, some tests. Uh, somebody took pictures of a Model Three being tested with one of those uh, in Europe, uh, with with the new connector on there. Uh, and Europe, European spec Model Threes and also Model S's and X's starting next year will uh, change from the traditional Tesla um, charging coupler to to the the combo connector. So I think. If they if they haven't filed their paperwork yet, they probably will in the next few months, because I know they, they do want to start selling in Europe pretty soon because demand has apparently been dwindling here in the U.S. for the Model 3. Huh. Um, wonder why.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: And then uh, the other one, uh, maybe you can tackle this one uh, from Cody. Uh, is asked, has 20 years of GM's art and science initiative at Cadillac being a, being a failure? I,
1: yeah. What do you I, think? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's actually built a visual identity for them, which is successful. The problem is uh, they haven't necessarily had the products to apply it to, and they're, they're getting there. You know, they've got the X-T4 now, which I think is, is something that's a couple years overdue, and it definitely fits with those art and science themes. Uh, I think they, they do look like Cadillacs, which is tough to do, you know, when they're they're sharing a lot of architecture with the rest of GM and and they're in that place where they want to evolve the look of the brand uh, but they still have to have some of those classical elements like the vertical taillights and, um, you know, just the Cadillacness. But they don't have giant grills and, you know, they're not these big sort of rectilinear stately things like they were from the 60s and 70s. Uh, so I think they've done actually quite a nice job of bringing bringing that art and science theme uh along too it hasn't hasn't stagnated it has evolved so i don't know that the the design theme has failed i think there's a lot of other things to point at that have been um challenges for them and uh, some of it is just product cadence and uh, others are just like out and out mistakes on trying to sell the cars <laughs> sometimes i get the impression they don't want to sell any cars
2: yeah, they've they've certainly had some marketing issues over the years. Uh but yeah, I no, I agree with you on the on the design side. I think that you know the the art and science, you know, theme has has evolved. And I think it's evolved nicely, you know, and it's um you know, it's still, you know, a good modern look that is distinctly Cadillac. You know, you, you see a Cadillac today and you know it's a Cadillac. You you know You know, they're not trying to copy Mercedes or BMW or Audi or Lexus. It doesn't look like any of those. You know, um, you know, it it looks like what you expect a modern Cadillac to look like. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And as you said, you know, there's been some, some issues with product cadence and just having the right products at the right time. Um, you know, and they're, they're working on that. You know, the XT four is on sale. Now the XT six will debut, uh, in a couple of weeks at the, uh, Detroit auto show. Um, and there will be more coming. They've promised uh, a new product every six months for the next couple of yeah, years. It's just like, so, it
1: has to be the right product. You know, that even the XT five is a, it's a good update from the SRX I think they did a really nice job on that and the Xt4 and the XT6 are going to really fill their their portfolio with the things that people are buying right now so we're gonna have to lament some of our favorite stuff going away you know like that ATS that you were talking about uh, I don't I don't really think the CTS is long for this world and certainly the CT6 is already gone so.
2: Yeah, the C- this, the ATS and CTS will both be replaced by the uh, the CT5 uh, next year. Um, which will probably debut at the New York auto show. Uh, and the CT six is still in production uh, here in North America, here in Detroit until June. Um, and, you know, they will build up some stock that will probably carry them well into 2020 uh, for availability. And it'll, it'll continue to be built and offered in China as well. Uh, Cause they already built it in China for the Chinese market. Uh, but I, I think that beyond 2020 remains to be seen You know if we'll have any kind of direct replacement for it here in North America. Yeah,
1: they're in this tough spot, too, because they really went after trying to be seen as an equal to Mercedes and BMW and Audi. Um, And I think that the cars have successfully gotten there. Uh, I just don't know that anybody cares at this point. Um, Nobody's really looking for rear-wheel drive sports sedans just at the time that Cadillac is making some of some of the best on the road and certainly the best it's ever managed uh to make Uh, so now it really is imperative that all of their crossovers and suvs are as equally excellent and i'm not sure that they are but uh it's not design's fault
2: (laughs) yeah that's that's absolutely true all right so let's uh let's wrap it up um for for this week and we'll try to come back again next week with another one in between the uh, the holidays. All
1: right, sounds good. Well, uh, uh, if uh, if you're listening to us on your drive to uh, the holiday, um, you know, eat a lot, especially pie,
2: <laughs> and, and and be safe out there on the roads. You know, because this time of year, the you know, you get all kinds of. Um, uh, Well, there's lots of people on the road and and the road conditions are not always great. And and sometimes the condition of the drivers is not always great. So, you know, keep your eyes open, stay alert and, and be careful. All right.
1: And we will see you guys next time. All right. Bye.